Well, I was thinking this week and remembering back to a time when I was in probably second grade, a long, long time ago for me. It's the first time that I can remember um, uh, kind of fixing my eyes on something that I thought, man, this, uh, I kind of was aware that maybe my own soul, my own life was a little bit empty. And I kind of fixed my eyes on something and thought, man, if only I could have that, then my life would be complete. Then I would experience fullness in my soul, right? As much as a second, you know, second grader can think that. But I mean, like, I was all like, oh yeah, this is the answer. This is what I've been looking for. This is going to be the solution to everything that's wrong and everything that's empty in my life. And so I kind of, I kind of fixed my eyes on this object. And, and I think I've got a picture here of what it is. Does that look like it's a gerbil. <laughs> Does that look like something that would bring eternal bliss to your soul? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chirp, chirp. It's really quiet. Why I set my eyes on that particular thing, I'll never know. But we had been talking about it and I thought, <gasps> if we had a pet gerbil, I don't know why, second grader, right? I mean, like what, what goes on in, 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 those, in those minds. But I'm like, if we could have a pet gerbil, man, that would be, that would be awesome. That would, my life would be fill, filled. It would bring joy eternal to my soul, man. That's going to, that's, that's got it going on. And so we, uh, I talked my sister into this idea too. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. And so we started saving money and we, we researched it, we went to the pet store, figured out exactly how much a pet gerbil would cost in the cage and the little tubes that they go through and all that kind of stuff, the food and all that kind of stuff. Cause my parents were like, yeah, we're not paying for that. <laughs> and so, and so we're, we start saving up and I'm, I'm counting the money and I'm looking at the goal and I'm thinking, this is going to take forever. And I, I tell you what, I was just not okay. My, I mean, every day I was just, it was driving me crazy. I was like, we've got to get this. This is the one thing that my soul needs. And so uh, I took matters into my own hands a little bit. One night, my parents went out. Um, I don't know where they were. They went out someplace. And uh, I, I, sin got the better of me, we'll just say. I, I, I can remember I climbed up on the counter. I, I kind of moved the dishes aside where I knew mom kept the milk money and the school lunch money. And I kind of rummaged through it a little bit, and I saw that the money was good and pleasing. It would help me get to my goal faster, and I swiped it. I swiped it, and I went, and I put it in our little collection, and I told my, I lied to my sister. I told my sister that I found it in the basement. She wanted the, the gerbil probably as much as I, so she didn't question it. It was like a don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. We were like, okay, that's fine. And uh, I tell you what, now, if you were to ask me, do you know that lying is wrong? I mean, that had been engraved into my behind <laughs> since I can remember. Right? I knew it was wrong to lie to my sister. D- did I know it was wrong to steal? Absolutely. But there was something about this. I had set my sights on having this thing. There, I had decided that there was one thing that I needed above all else, and I was willing to sacrifice and do whatever it took to get that thing that I thought my soul needed. And so I, I swiped the money. I lied to my sister, and... I waited. And how long do you think it took for mom to catch on? I mean, like, I knew that if I got caught, I would be in huge trouble. I probably even knew that mom reaches into that every day. Like, there's gonna, like, there's, there's probably a pretty good chance she's gonna notice that it's, like, all gone. And so, but, and yet, I, like, like I said, I just, I had to have it. And so, the next morning, <laughs> as it were, uh, she went looking for hot lunch money, and she's like, 
where'd the money go? And she, I don't know why, but for some reason she went to me first. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know why that is. And, and, you know, there was punishment. Not only did I lose all the money that I took, but I lost all the money that we had pooled before that, right? Uh, there was serious consequences to my backside. Right? I mean, it was, it was a, I learned a lesson that I will not, that I was not soon going to forget. But uh, it's one of those things that I was like, you know, I, I, I don't know what, what sort of consumed me or what, what drove me to that. And yet, I, like I said, I had set my sights so much on this one thing to bring life to my soul that I was willing to, to cross all kinds of boundaries. I was willing to go to heights that didn't even make sense to achieve it, to get what I thought I needed. Now, as I got older, um, started growing up, I, I think I hit all different kinds of, uh, uh, of quests like that. All different kinds of things caught my attention. I went from a gerbil to that. How long do you think that lasted? The buzz of that lasted about two weeks for me, and then I was over it, right? I was sort of like, it, it, didn't, it didn't completely satisfy my soul. It was really fun for a little bit, and then I was like, yeah, what else you got? And so then I kind of set my sights on the next thing. I kind of went after computer stuff for a while, and then... And then uh, after that, I kind of, uh, you know, d- decided on, on music and performance, being in the spotlight. I thought if I was just a good enough musician, maybe that'd do it for me. Maybe I could achieve and excel and stand out. And so I did that for a while. And then I was like, yeah, it's not so much it either. And so then, like, you get a little older, you move into adolescence. And I thought, hey, girls, that's got to be it, right? I, I, was, I was stupid before with the gerbil thing, but I can see now it must be the, the right girl. And so pursued that for a while. And yet each one of these things kind of left me empty. Left, after a while, it was fun for a while. And at the the end of it, though, I found myself frustrated. I found myself empty. I found myself still longing for more and thinking, what in the world? These things promised to deliver. And yet when I actually got there, it wasn't what I thought it was. It just left me empty. It left me frustrated. And sometimes left me with great disappointment because of what I had to sacrifice in order to pursue that dream. Ever done that before? ever run after different things? I think all of us have in one way or another. Ever, ever sort of set your sights on something and said, boy, if I could just, you know, just work my way up at the ladder and make career the main thing, I, I would someday get to a point where I had so much money or so much prestige or whatever that that would be it, right? That would fill my life. That's success looks like that's what, that's the good stuff. Or, or maybe some of us have set our sights on, on like bigger and better homes and cars and all the stuff that money can buy. And you've pursued that and gone after it only to find that, that the buzz wears off a little bit. I remember uh, John Orberg one time saying, the problem with happy meals is that the happy wears off. <laughs> and I think that's, that's the case with any of this stuff, right? The happy sort of wears off. It could be technology and get, ever set your eyes on the next coolest big thing, the, the, the biggest TV. Well, now there's 3D and then 4K and there's curved and there's all, maybe it's the next kind of technology piece or the coolest new phone and thinking, man, if I had that, then, oh yeah. That's going to be the good stuff. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's luxury vacations or whatever. Thinking, man, if only I could, I could you know, live at Disney or on the beach all the time, man, that would be it. Oh, yeah, that'd be the good stuff. And it's fun for a while, right? But the happy wears off eventually. It really does. Well, I'll tell you what, we are on week number two of a series that we're doing uh, called Better Trading in ordinary life for something more. 
And last week we started out this series uh, looking at Psalm 84 and we kind of, we, we, where the author says, you know, better is one day in your courts, better is one day with you, God, than a thousand days somewhere else. And then he goes on to say, I would rather be a doorkeeper, which we said is, is sort of like the lowest of low uh, positions in the temple. He's, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. He's like, I'd rather be a janitor. I'd rather be a garbage man and be close to you than to spend a thousand days anywhere else. Because what he's saying is because life with you you is so much better. It's what we're made for. It's what our souls crave. It's what we long for to the core of our being. We are made for relationship with God. And any time we pursue and go after and set our hearts on something else, it's, it's this little thing that the Bible calls an idol. And it's a cheap substitute. It's an imitation. It's something that maybe for a little while is fun. The happy meal, oh, it tastes really good until you actually eat it and it goes into your stomach. But right, I mean, like, it's, it's fun for a little while, but eventually the happy wears off and we find ourselves longing again. And so today, I want to, as, as we kind of dig into this whole talk, this whole topic of, of living a better life, I want to talk about this whole concept of idols because it's something that I think all of us fall into. All of us are tempted to substitute that life with God that we are made for, the only place that we can find fullness and lasting joy in him. All of us are tempted to substitute better for idols, for the things we were just looking at on the screen, for something less. And so today I want us to, to kind of zoom in on that a little bit and talk about uh, how to identify what idols look like in our lives and sort of what to do with them. How do we respond if we find that there are actually things in our hearts that are rivaling God, things that we have set our passions that are driving our lives more than God? We're gonna talk about how do we respond? what's, What's the appropriate response if we recognize some of these idols in our own hearts and lives? So that's where we're going. You with me? So that's where we're going. We're gonna learn about this today. Uh, primarily from an Old Testament story uh, we're going to jump into for a second. But let me give you just a little bit of background so we, we're all on the same page before we, before we dive in. If you, uh, you might be familiar with the story of the Exodus, and that's kind of where we're going to be going. But uh, God has just brought the people of Israel, his, the God's chosen people. He's, he's taken them uh, from Egypt in which they were living as slaves. And he has freed them and he has led them out. Remember through the Red Sea? Remember that whole story? What happens to the Red Sea? Waters part. God's people walk through on dry ground and the the waters go back down. Pharaoh's army gets wiped out. I mean, it's it's an amazing story. God shows his hand. He, He performs miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And he brings his people out of slavery. He sets them free. And then he brings them through the desert to this place called Mount Sinai. And there, uh, God sort of appears to them in this uh, cloud and he, and he wants to speak to his people. He wants to draw, draw his people near. He wants to speak to them and give them directions and instructions. And, and so Moses, their leader, comes up in the mountain in this thick darkness and he meets with the living God. He receives instructions for how God's people are to live in relationship with him, how they're to stay close to him, how they're to continue to walk and to draw near to and to live with and set their hearts and their eyes and their lives on the living God. And so that's where we're gonna pick up the story because we get to, to uh, Exodus 32. 
two, and all of a sudden we see people, uh, people that, that have shifted their eyes from over here, from meeting with and finding more in the living God, they, and they've instead shifted their eyes to happy meals and to shiny things, and they've gotten distracted by idols. Listen to this, Exodus 32, starting with verse one says this, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, so Moses goes up the mountain, he's meeting with the living God, there's thick blackness, there's thunder and lightning that's happening on the mountain because, I mean, it's a visible sort of manifestation of God's presence. God is meeting with Moses, giving him the Ten Commandments, doing all this kind of stuff, and, and so that's happening, and at the base of the mountain are the people, and they've, they're like, you know what, Moses has taken a little while. And so that, that's what they're saying here. Yeah, Moses has taken too long. It's taken too long for him to come down from the mountain. Let's keep going. So they gathered around Aaron and they said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And so Aaron answered him, okay, right? He says, take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings and they brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed to him and they made, him, and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. By the way, I think God feels about this at this point. God had just done unbelievable things. One of the things we've talked about before, right? God does not like to share his glory with another, right? God likes to show himself to his people. He likes to show off and flex his muscles from time to time and kind of show the world that he is there. He's the living God. He's all powerful. And so he has done this amazing thing. And then these guys make a little statue and say, hey, this is the one that actually brought us up out of, it wasn't God. It was this, this idol here that brought us up out of Egypt and set us free. Aaron answered them, uh, or no, and Aaron saw this. He built an altar in front of the calf, and he announced tomorrow there, uh, there will be a festival to the Lord, referring to the calf. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up uh, to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down. Because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now let's just stop right there. But the the crazy thing for me as I was reading through this is how quickly this has happened. God has just brought the people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and he's done so miraculously, right? We just talked about the Red Sea, but there, was, there were many other miracles, right? There was one after the other after the other. Remember, I mean, the Passover kind of deal where God rescued the people of Israel, right? I mean, there were plagues, there were frogs, there were boilers, all kinds of stuff, plagues, but God protected the people of Israel. He, he brought Pharaoh to the point where Pharaoh finally said, okay, let, I'll let your people go. Then he brought him out and Pharaoh was coming after them with his army, was going to wipe them out. He opens up the Red Sea. He parts it. His people go through. They are free. He has just done miraculous things in their sights. Really amazing kinds of things. It has only been a very short period of time. Not more than 90 days have passed since that's happened. So it's pretty fresh in the people's memories. On top of that, the, the living God himself is making his presence known. He's on the mountain. The people are at the base of the mountain, probably a couple hundred yards away. There's lightning, there's thunder, there's all this thick darkness surrounding God's presence as he meets with Moses on this mountain. It's a visible, intangible sign 
And yet, what happens? People get bored a little bit. They get, it's taking too long. And so they settle for something else, something lesser. And they make an idol. And they pursue something. They get distracted. They go, they go somewhere else. God brings them to Mount Sinai and he tells them to get ready because God himself is showing up to this party and yet they settle for something less. It's crazy to me. How can that happen? The mountain's still under a thick, dark cloud and yet the people uh, prefer instead to worship an idol. The question that I just, again, just kept going through my mind is, how could this happen? How could it happen so quickly? How could, how could they so easily overlook God that is right before them? I mean, they've just experienced so graphically that life with God is better. They've experienced freedom. He rescued them. He provided for them. He promised them a land to call their own. He set them free. How could they forget his presence with them? How could he forget when the mountain is only a few hundred yards away? How could they forget God's love that was shown them every day? How could they forget the way that God's providing food for them for every meal? How could they forget God in that instance? Well, if you go back just a few chapters to right before uh, Moses goes up the mountain, I think we get a little bit of a snapshot here. And it's uh, Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. It says this, When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and they heard the trumpet and they saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear, it says. And they stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak speak to us yourself, Moses, and we'll listen. But do not have God speak to us or we'll die. They were afraid. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that you may fear, uh, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning, to protect you. The people, but the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. It's interesting to me, but the people were afraid and therefore they stayed at a distance from God. They didn't want to talk to God. They didn't want to hear from God. They didn't want to draw close to God. They were afraid of what God was going to say to them. They were afraid of what they might have to give up. They were afraid that they might not want to follow him that they might not want to have his direction in their lives. And I think this is the key to understanding idolatry. You see, we are a craving people. We're designed with a thirst for something more in our souls. It's a vacuum, a void, if you will, in our souls that is constantly looking for something to fill it, looking for something better. And that void is designed uh, by God to drive us into a relationship with him, to drive us to get filled up and to find all that we need and crave and long for in him. It's like St. Augustine, fourth century early church father said, he said, he said this, he said, you have formed us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are continually restless until they find rest in you. We're made to crave and to thirst for that kind of fullness, but when we remain at a distance from God, if we refuse to drink in and to find the life that we're meant for with God, if we don't get filled up there, our next move will be to look somewhere else to try to find what we're looking for. And by definition, that is idolatry. That's worshiping an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. Anything so central and essential in your life that should you lose it, life wouldn't feel worth living. I think sometimes the problem when we read stories like this and we think about idols like this is... uh, 
I mean, we think of physical idols. We think of idols that look something like this. And we think, well, I don't, I mean, I don't know about you, but I haven't really bowed down before some little statue and done this whole deal. And that, so, so we think, oh, well, I don't struggle with idolatry. But I'll tell you what, friends, the idolatry is a matter of heart. Listen to this. This is from Ezekiel. It says just this. Ezekiel 14.3 says, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before. God makes it perfectly clear that idolatry is probably less. It includes, right, bowing down. Oh, right. It includes that. But idolatry is probably less about that and more a matter of heart. You and I struggle with idolatry not because we bow down before statues, but because we seek fulfillment and life and fullness and we set our passions and our hearts more fully on other things than we do on the Lord. When we look to those things rather than God for the life that we're meant for, to, to, to fill up and, and uh, bring fulfillment to our souls when we do that, that is idolatry. Following idols or following, that's a heart issue. We don't have to bow down to a gold statue to commit idolatry. Instead, any time that we look to something else other than God as the driving force in our lives, it's an idol. An idol in your life has such a controlling interest in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without hardly a second thought. Idols can be almost anything. They can be really good things. Uh, You can make an idol out of your family or out of your children, out of your career, out of making money or achievement. You can make an idol out of saving face in social settings, out of romantic relationships, out of peer pressure, like peer approval, or secure and comfortable circumstances. You can even make... um, idols out of beauty or brains or morality or virtues, religion, almost anything can be an idol in our lives. An idol is whatever you look at and you say in your heart, I have to have that. If I have that, then I'll know that my life has meaning and purpose. Then I'll know I have value and I'm significant and I'm secure. It's an idol. I remember reading a story a number of years ago uh, by Bob Buford, who's a Texas businessman. He's written some great books and that kind of thing. But he talks about a time in his life when uh, everything was going his way. By the time he was in his mid-40s, he'd reached every goal he had ever set for himself. He was a CEO and the president of of a very successful cable TV company. He had a happy marriage. He had a huge and beautiful home. He had lots of toys. He had financial security. In fact, he was he was independently wealthy. Didn't need to work another day in his life ever, and would have more than enough to go around. And he found that although many people considered him to be a success, he found that there was still this sense of emptiness in his own soul. He was still lacking purpose. He was still lacking something. And he wanted to find out what it was. And so he hired a a very well-known, a very bright, uh, but not a Christian uh, guy and business consultant to come in and to help him and his wife. Guy's name was Mike. He had a fabulous mind. And so he asked, he came in and met with Bob and his wife, Linda, and uh, tried to get to the bottom of it. And he did it by asking one question. He, he came in, this is why he made the big bucks, right? He came in with a blank sheet of paper. He drew a box in the middle. And he said, the question that you need to answer is what's in the box for you? What's in the box for you? And Bob asked Mike to explain it. So Mike told him about a time that he had worked for Coca-Cola And they decided that the main thing for their company, the driving force for their company was great taste. And that led them to develop a product called New Coke. Anybody remember the New Coke experience? How'd that work out for them? 
Not so good, right? They almost bankrupted the place. It was a total disaster. Mike said that the Coke guys, uh, your problem is that you put the wrong thing in the box, I think. And so he said, what's the mainspring? What's the driving force for which you exist? And they went back to the, to the drawing board and they came back and they said, you know what? I think, I think it's the American tradition. They said, we're about American tradition that led them to kind of go back to the drawing board and they came back with classic Coke, which saved the company and turned the, turned the company back around. Mike told this story to Bob and Linda, and then he said to them, you know, you have to be real clear on what the central purpose of your life is. What's the main thing? Real clear on this. He said, I've talked with you guys long enough to know it's one of two things. It's either money, and he drew a money sign. He said, or it's Jesus Christ, and he drew a cross in the box. He says, but you, you only get to choose one. And so you've got to answer the question, what's in the box for you? Bob writes this, he says, No one had ever put such a significant question to me so directly. He said, I sat there literally stunned by this decision. Linda appeared no less stunned. I could see the stereotypical images of ministers and missionaries and priests passing through her mind. Would we have to give all of our money away? Would we, have to re- would we be required to dress like a minister and his spouse? To which I say, hey. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, Bob wrote a book called Halftime. It's about wrestling with this question and helping others to wrestle with this question as well. Because as he would say, every human being, every baby that has ever been born or will ever be born has to answer this question. Even if you don't answer it or are aware of your answer, you have answered the question. There is one thing in the box of your life that is the driving force. And if it's not God, it's an idol. Literally, if, if, if God is not, if, if, if the Lord is not the central driving force in our life, if it's not what orients all the rest of our life around it, if it's not where we go for life in fullness, if it's not where we go when we're, when we're pleased as punch and everything's going our way and we go there to celebrate, we go there to find purpose and meaning and whatever to celebrate with God, if it's not where we go when we are at the bottom and we don't know what, where else to turn to or what to do, if we're not going there, if that's not the main thing in our life, then chances are we are pursuing an idol in our life. We're going after something else. And let me tell you, friends, the truth of the matter is that if we are pursuing something else, it will inevitably, it will let you down. It will. Because we are pursuing and going after something in fear. Uh, we're, we're looking for something that only God can do, only God is meant to do in us. But all of us are going to put something in that box. We can either put God in the box and pursue him, order our lives around him and look to him for fullness and joy and life and fulfillment and purpose and all, the, all that other stuff. Either we'll look to him or we will look to something else. And if we look to something else, there will be consequences. And I think we know this intuitively, don't we? I think, I mean, if, I think most of us do. We, you kind of look around. If, if a man or a woman puts um, business success, their career, if they put that in the box, you think there will be consequences for their family? We know that, right? Right? I mean, if, if the only thing that matters for them, the main thing is I have to be a success at work, how many hours a week do you think they're going to work? If they get asked to work overtime, if they get asked to work Saturdays and Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays every day, you think they'll do it? Yeah, they have to because that's what success is. That's what they're looking to. That's their idol. Of course there's consequences. It'll, it'll wreak havoc, won't it, on your personal life, on your marriage, on your kids, on your family. 
There's consequences. We know that. We've seen it lately with the Olympics, haven't we? We see this all the time in sports. But the Olympics, they had the whole doping scandal, right? Half the Russian team, maybe more, I don't know. A whole bunch of the Russian team had to, had to miss the Olympics because there was, there was this whole idea. They had to be a success. They, had to, they weren't enough on their own, and they needed to do something because they had to win. And so they did stuff they knew, they knew was illegal, they knew was a risk, but they did it anyway because, man, they thought, if oh, I need to have this, this is my idol, and it required more and more and more, and it cost them a great deal. We see, and we see this in sports all, all kinds of times, don't we? What did they call it, deflate gate? You remember that? Like under-inflating footballs or corking bats a little bit further, a little bit longer back so they could hit more home runs. And I mean, there's a, you see this kind of thing all the time. They have set their idol before them and their idol requires more and more and more and more because I must be a success. I must be the Hall of Fame. I must be whatever. And, it's, and I'm not enough, so therefore I'll go to any length. There's a cost, isn't there? There's a cost. I think sometimes you can see I mean, you can see that kind of cost even with beauty. Beauty can be an idol, right? You can be pursuing that drive for looking a certain way and thinking that's what's going to make your life great. People will pay for all, spend, I mean, it's billions of dollars a year get spent for surgeries or for dieting or for whatever. People spend thousands and thousands of dollars on products that are supposed to take away wrinkles and do all kinds of, right? We spend tremendous amounts of money. Again, is there anything wrong with any one of these? No, but oftentimes it's gone further, right? We've put that in the box and we're pursuing it at all costs. And there can be a, a, a crazy cost. People starve themselves to death, don't they? There's all kinds of eating disorders in our country. Uh, people will starve themselves because they're, they're pursuing. They have to have a certain body type. They have to have a certain image. It's a huge deal. I think so, I've seen people put children in, in the box, I think oftentimes uh, couples, and I'm not talking about anybody here, so if this is your situation, I'm sorry, I don't think it is, but uh, I think sometimes, especially uh, people that have had a hard time having children on their own, or whatever, they've struggled with infertility issues or whatever, oftentimes, or or maybe even adoption, you know, they end up doing adoption, but... uh, uh, particularly when they've had a hard time, they get kids and, the, and pleasing the kids and raising the kids and the kids become the main thing in their lives. And again, is, that a good, is it a good thing that children are of value and important? Of course that's a good thing. But when it becomes the, the thing that's in the box, man, does that have consequences. And I, I've seen this happen so often. It's good when the kids are little, but as they grow up and they start becoming their own people, they start growing in independence and they start going through that adolescent teenage thing where they're pulling away Oftentimes, it causes tremendous amounts of tension and pressure and conflict. Why? Because the parents need them. They need them to be needed. They need to be needed, right? They're like, they've, they have to, they'll do whatever it takes. And then even as kids go off to college and they go through the empty nesting thing, it's a huge deal. Because that was the purpose, the driving force of their life. And now the kids are out of the nest. What do we do? Right? My only, yeah, adopt some more. <laughs> right? But my only point, you see the point? Man, when we put anything in the box other than God, man, there are consequences. It'll be fun for a while. It'll be happy for a while, but the happy will wear off. And so, so often the consequences can be devastating to us. It'll drive us to cross lines to do things that should not be done in pursuit of that which only God can provide. It's an idol. There's a, 
place in the Psalms that I always think of when I think of idols. Psalm 135, 18 is talking about some of the, the, the consequences and the sacrifices and that kind of stuff. And it says this, got that next slide, yeah. Those who make, it's talking about those who make idols. Those who make idols will be like them and so will all who trust in them. Idols tend to shape us. Idols bend everything else in our lives towards them and they cost, the cost of that is sky high. Either we end up sacrificing and paying such a high price on those things that, uh, that are most dear to us that, uh, that we suffer great loss in the pursuit of an idol or we, do, uh, we end up maybe cynical and hopeless when those idols finally let us down. Friends, idols will never deliver what they promise. They only cost you and cost you and cost you and cost you and cost you. But there is something better. That's why God gives us the first commandment in Exodus 20, verse three. He says this, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image, it means literally an idol, in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And he's not, uh, he gets done with the, the 10 commandments this is one of the 10, right? He gets done with it. He says, I'm giving these things to you so that life will go well for you. You know what God's saying? He's saying there's something better. He's not doing this to hold out on you. He's saying, man, life doesn't work with anything but God in the box. That's how we're meant to live. We are meant for relationship with him. We're meant to do life with him. We're meant for that to be the ultimate purpose and joy and fullness, the one that we pursue, the one that we go to, the one that we look to to find life. And when we do that, all of the rest of life seems to work better. But when we substitute the living God for anything else, life does not go well for us. That's why he gives us the commandment. You shall have no, don't have any other gods before me. I'm doing this so that life can go well for you. Let me just kind of wrap up here and just say, let's ask the question here. The question that's being begged all the way through this message, all the way through these texts is, is there an idol in your life? What is in the box for you? Really, now you can give the good churchy answer. You know what the right answer is supposed to be, right? It's Jesus, right? Like that's, you can give the good churchy answer, but I'm looking for the real answer. If you were, if you were to look at your life from an outside perspective, what would you answer the question? How would you answer the question? What would you see in, in the way you spend your money, in the way you spend your days, in the way you pursue God or you pursue other things, in the decisions that you make? What's in the box? What's the main thing for you? What's the driving force? What's the thing that you've set your heart on achieving that you're convinced I have to have this above all others in order for life to go well? Is it a relationship with the living God or is it something else? Can we be honest here? I think all of us can probably, in one way or another, either today or at some point have to admit, you know, we have pursued other gods. We have gone after idols. We have put something else in the box other than God. And if that's the case for you today, can I suggest two application steps? And then we'll be done. The first one I'm just gonna mention uh, comes straight out of the, the story from Exodus is uh, 
would you turn away from the idol and turn back to God and just seek forgiveness? Right, I'm, for the sake of time, I'm just going to uh, kind of skip over that. But Moses goes and he prays on behalf of the people and says, basically, God, forgive them for their sins. They have gone, they've put in something else in the box. They have gone after an idol and they say, oh, and he, say, he cries out to God and says, oh God, would you forgive them? And I wonder if some of us, if that's not the step for us today, if we're honest, where we could just say, God, I, would, I have gone after other things. I have pursued money or I've pursued career or I've pursued family or I've gone after you know, my own enjoyment or pleasure or I've gone after whatever, fill in the box. Would you forgive me, God? And I want to turn away from that and turn back to you. Would you restore me? Would you bring me back into relationship with you, God? Would you teach me to walk with you, to love you, to know you, to go to you, to pursue you, to make you the driving force in my life? If there is anything in that box other than God, man, this is the step all of us need to take. I need to take. We all need to take today. Say, God, confess it ask for forgiveness, and turn back to God. And that's the second part, right, is, is to replace the idol with God, right? And, and this is just that, that whole concept that our, our souls are like vacuum-packed, right? When we, if we open them up, it's, it kind of sucks air in, you know? <laughs> like it's, it's, it's looking for something that's gonna bring stability and fulfillment to our souls. And as long as we keep looking to other things and pursuing other things, there will be disequilibrium in our lives. It'll never, it'll never balance out. It'll never be right. And so not only do we need to turn away from these things, but we need to start learning to pursue and find all that we crave and long for and need in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's real practical. That's what we've been talking about, learning to do our days, learning to live our lives with God. And that can look like anything from like saying, you know what? I, I, I've never really been a person of this book, so, so maybe I'm gonna start reading this book. I'm gonna get down on my knees and read a chapter a day. I'm gonna go through one of the gospels, maybe Luke or John, and I'm just gonna pray, God, would you show yourself to me? Would you fill me? Would you direct and lead my life? I need you. And then read through it and say, God, what are you saying? And, and, and what does this mean to me? How do I put it into practice today? How can I live out your truth in my life? Maybe it's as simple as, as uh, getting down on your knees uh, in the morning or in the evening or whatever and just opening up your heart and pouring out your, your cries to God, having that conversation and, and even just crying out saying, God, I need you. Maybe it's when we're recognizing that soul or that, that longing in our soul or that vacuum in our soul. Maybe it's praying right then and there, letting that be a little trigger that turns your soul and your eyes Godward and say, God, would you fill me? Would you set my eye? Would you draw me close to you? I need you. Turn away from the idol and turn back to the living God and pursue and find life there. 